Uh oh. Okay. No, no, I'm good now. All right. Rewind. All right. When I'm standing in the back and I'm just thinking about the songs, not in me. My righteousness is Jesus' life. My debt was paid by Jesus' death. My weary load was borne by him, and he alone can give me rest. My God is merciful to me and merciful in Christ alone. You may not be at Covenant Life forever. I plan to be here. Uh, but uh, if you, for whatever reason, in God's providence, find yourself elsewhere, and you think about the songs that you hear sung as you gather together, I pray you look for rich, theological, sound doctrine songs like what are sung here, and how that reinforces gospel truth that we sing to one another. And I even think about my own kids as they sit here and learn these songs as they grow up, and I'm thankful for it. My name is John Huff. I'm one of the lay elders here at Covenant Life. If I haven't had the privilege of meeting you, I would love to do so today. So I'll be outside afterwards and uh, would appreciate the opportunity if we haven't met yet, if you come up and, and uh, greet me. Our lead pastor, our main preaching pastor, Justin, is on sabbatical right now. Uh, he'll be back in about four weeks or so. And I've been thinking about him a lot. I'm very thankful that our church sees the value of giving uh, the Perry's Justin a sabbatical, and I pray that this allows them to come back refreshed, ready to go to serve for decades to come. I just think about Hebrews 13, 17, when it says that your leaders keep watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And that's a heavy weight to keep watch over somebody's soul as those that will have to give an account to God. And so it is a needed thing, and, and we see it every five years to give a sabbatical, give a break. Uh, allow uh, our lead preaching pastor to take that break. So if you need anything while he is gone, please feel free to reach out to any elder. Uh, and as I say that, our family's going to go away on a vacation for a couple of weeks. Um, Kevin is on paternal leave. Ronnie leaves for vacation tomorrow. And uh, Micah is already on vacation. So if you need anything, Jeremy... Okay. <laughs> We better pray. <laughs> Father, what sweet fellowship it is to come together because of the union that we share in your son, Jesus Christ. And we confess it is not on any merit of our own that we stand before you, but only in his righteousness. You are merciful to us and you are merciful in Christ alone. God, the, the gospel gives us goosebumps to think about how gracious you have been, that you don't put us in the scales and see if we measure up, that we do not earn or contribute or, or add to the work of Christ, but we rest in what Christ has done for us, that when he said on the cross it is finished, he meant it. God, I pray that your people would rejoice in this gospel today and every day, as we look at Galatians 1 and as we see how important it is to protect the gospel, may we take that responsibility very seriously. God, use your word to bear fruit among your people. Make us more like Christ for having been here today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.
In our community group, that's our small group, our, our church has about a dozen of them or so, uh, I oftentimes like to ask an icebreaker question, just a way to get people talking, getting them warmed up for some conversation. And recently I asked the group, what is something that other people do that bothers you? Right? And that could be a dangerous question in some groups, but it was insightful just to get to know a little bit more about people. As we start the book of Galatians, it doesn't take long to see that something is bothering Paul. And he gets to it right away. You have that greeting that Bob unpacked for us last week. It's kind of short. There's not a whole lot of blessing talk there. And then there's this one-two punch of curses. And, and we see already why Paul is coming in so hot. He opens the letter basically by saying, I'm astonished that you. And what really bothered Paul, unlike that little icebreaker game that we played, wasn't some trivial matter, right? It wasn't people driving too slow in the fast lane or something of that sort. What bothered him was in when somebody perverts the gospel of Jesus Christ. And also when somebody walks away from the faith. The apostle John said in 3 John, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. And I think every parent can echo these words. Every Christian parent's greatest desire, I believe, is or should be that their children are walking in the truth. And Paul loved the Galatians like his own children. And he heard a report of how they were doing, and it wasn't good. And he, he fears that the Galatians are abandoning the Christian faith for another gospel, a, a different gospel. Whenever I have the privilege of preaching, I always like to pull the title for the sermon directly from the text. I prayerfully seek to discover the main idea of the text and then pull a title directly from the words of the text. I recognize the danger in doing so with this morning's sermon because the CLC sermon archives will note that on July 3rd, 2022, John Huff preached a different gospel, okay? <laughs> but by God's grace, that will not be the case. I want you to follow me as we look briefly at some of the stops on Paul's first missionary journey. If you can hold your spot here in Galatians, a lot of the verses you'll see in the future are going to be on the screen, but these in Acts we're going to read. So if you want to turn to Acts 13, Acts 13, if you want to follow along as we read several verses on Paul's first missionary journey. That helps us set the stage for where he's at and what has taken place even as he started taking the gospel to these people. So Acts 13 Verse 1, now there, was, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius or Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So this is where the story starts. In Antioch, in Syria, the Holy Spirit, through the church, sets aside Saul and Barnabas to send them out as missionaries. They get on a boat. They end up over in Cyprus. They move on, verses 13 and 14. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. And then verse 14, but they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. That is where that city, they left Antioch in Syria. Ironically, they went to an Antioch elsewhere in Pisidia. That is Galatia. Bob was helpful last week and even giving you a little map in the, in the bulletin. 
So this is one of those cities. And on the Sabbath day, going into the Galatians, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. They didn't know what they were asking for, right? In the synagogue, they asked Paul, do you have anything you'd like to say? Yes, he does. Uh, this is oftentimes in prospective member conversations. Somebody's going through the membership process. They meet with an elder or two. And uh, I like to ask people when I'm in on those conversations to explain the gospel to me succinctly. Just summarize it for me. Imagine the two of us stepped into an elevator. I hit floor 20, and you know you've got that much time to give me the gospel, right? And this is what Paul is doing in Acts 13. This isn't lengthy. This isn't like Eutychus falling out of the window type of sermon. He's just succinctly giving the gospel to them. And he gets down to verses 38 and 39. And he says, let it be known to you. So we're still in chapter 13. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes, think about underlining that word, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. And so he is setting a contrast in the ways that people view how we can be justified, how we can be freed from our sin and forgiven from our sin. The gospel is set forth as faith alone, not works. It is grace alone. It is not in keeping the law. And it is in Christ alone that it is, it is no part of our moral effort. The people respond well in verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. Right? They got a little snippet, and they wanted to hear more. Verse 44, next Sabbath comes around. Almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Wow, things are going great right now. Paul's preaching the gospel. People are responding. The Holy Spirit is working. They're coming to faith. They can't get enough of it. Everything's going great until verse 45. But when the Jews saw the crowd, and when you see the Jews there, it's referring to the religious leaders. When they saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. So we see that the gospel goes forth and it is met with opposition. And we know it is always met with opposition. Sometimes that opposition is indifference. For Paul, it was more than that. It was worse than that. It was hostility. He ends up leaving Pisidian, Antioch and Pisidian, and goes to another Galatian city called Iconium. That's chapter 14. Let's look there just briefly. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe more cities in Galatia, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country, and there they continue to preach the gospel. The gospel, when it goes forth, is always met by opposition. 
sometimes the enemies of the gospel are clear and evident. They stand out. You can spot them. Who is it in this text? It's the people picking up big stones to throw at Paul. Enemies of the gospel. Sometimes they're not so obvious, though, and that's where we get as we come back into Galatians 1. So think about it in a military analogy. Uh, Revolutionary War. New recruit joins the American militia. First battle. He's nervous. He's got his musket. He doesn't quite know what he's doing. He was just a farmer. He asked the guy next to him, how do I know who to shoot at? They tell him, the people in the red coats, right? It's like obvious. They're, they're going to stand out. You're going to know who the enemy is. But in Galatians 1, what we see is a different enemy. It's not the obvious soldier. It's more of like a suicide bomber that blends in with the crowd. And Paul is saying the enemies of the gospel sometimes come as wolves in sheep's clothing. These Judaizers didn't wear a t-shirt that said, hug me, I'm a false teacher, right? It wasn't obvious, but that just made them all the more dangerous. They would twist and distort, pervert, change, add to, subtract to the gospel just enough so that it was no longer the gospel. It was a different gospel, which means it was no gospel. And if we're going to be able to spot a false gospel, we have to know clearly what the biblical gospel is. Our greatest danger is not an anti-gospel outside the church. It is a counterfeit gospel in the church. For good reason, Martin Luther said that justification by faith alone is the article upon which the church stands or falls. And so we need the book of Galatians. If you're a note taker, Here's the first point, and we're going to flip back to Galatians now. Galatians 1, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is the gospel. Verses 6 and 7, Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So the tense that Paul uses here with this verb is that they are in the process of doing something. It is not that the ship has sailed. They are deserting him. It's not just a matter of changing their doctrinal stance. They are walking away, turning their backs on the Lord. The terminology there conveys the idea of a traitor switching sides, pledging allegiance to another. This is reminiscent of the Israelites. You remember Moses on Mount Sinai receiving direct revelation from God, the Ten Commandments written on the tablets. And what are the Israelites doing down below? They are turning from God. They're turning to a different gospel. You see how Paul is bothered, understatement here in Galatians 1. If you were to read in Exodus 32, you would see how bothered Moses was. Throwing down the tablets, he takes their golden calf and says, we're going to melt that thing down, actually destroy it, crumble it up, and you're going to drink it. He's upset. And this is where Paul's at. He's astonished. These Galatians, so quickly after hearing the gospel, are now turning from it. In these verses, Paul doesn't unpack the gospel, but he does through this book of Galatians. And we see that the core of the gospel that he's addressing here is this question. How are people justified before God? How are people justified before God? 
Bob made mention last week of the Judaizers. The Judaizers, when you first heard them, you would think they were Christians. They sounded Christian. They would talk about faith in Christ. They wouldn't deny that you have to trust in Jesus. But they would say, well, it is a necessary condition. It's not a sufficient condition. So let's think about this clearly. What is the difference between a necessary condition and a sufficient condition? Well, it's really the difference between these two words, and or alone. The Judaizers were teaching, yes, it is faith in Christ, and that faith isn't sufficient in and of itself. It's necessary, but more is needed. Whereas the biblical gospel teaches not that simply it is faith in Christ, but it is faith in Christ alone. That is what the Protestant Reformation, from which we derive our heritage, came from. Not a question of whether we're justified by faith. Yes, nobody would deny that, but whether we're justified by faith alone. And Paul is telling these Galatians, literally their eternal destiny hangs on how they understand justification. Justification, as Paul taught it, is by an imputed righteousness. Imputed, I-M-P-U-T-E-D, imputed righteousness. The Judaizers taught that justification was by an infused righteousness. Infused. So what's the difference between those two? Well, an imputed righteousness is not a righteousness of our own. It is one that is accredited to our account. It is Christ's righteousness, his perfect sinless life, his death on the cross, fulfilling what the first Adam failed to do, the second Adam did perfectly. And by faith in him, that righteousness is imputed to our account. Whereas the false gospel of the Judaizers was not that Christ's righteousness is yours, but rather God has begun this work in you through faith that you have to complete, that you have to work with him, this process of justification. You would have to get circumcised. You'd have to adhere to the Mosaic Sabbath and ceremonies and laws. Galatians 2.16, Paul unpacks this more. He says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ. I mean, he's just swinging that hammer over and over, hitting the same nail, and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Well, some will inevitably say, well, what about James? Doesn't James teach that we need works? Well, if it's helpful, think of this picture. Because James talks about works in a way that when you first read it, you may think it seems like he's not saying the same thing Paul's saying. James and Paul aren't facing each other as enemies that are having a theological debate. Just the opposite, they are back-to-back. Paul has an enemy of the gospel that he's confronting in Galatians, and when you read James, you see that James is confronting a different enemy. They're teammates, they're not opponents. So in James, James 2, let me just read a couple other verses. Jeremy, are they popping up here? 2 Corinthians 5.21. You don't need to turn there if it is on the screen behind us, but I'm going to turn. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Philippians 3.9. Philippians 3.9. 
and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And then one more, Romans 4, 5. Romans 4, 5. And the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So then we talked about James. If we look at James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, it sounds at first that James is saying something different. James 2, 14 through 17, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. What is James talking about here? He's not saying faith plus works equals justification. What he's saying is faith equals justification plus works. You see the difference between the two? It is not faith plus works equals justification. It's faith in Christ alone that equals justification plus works. That means if there's not works that follow, then the faith that you have is a dead faith. It is not a saving faith. It is not genuine faith. And I would beg of everyone here who has not yet trusted in Christ, do not rely on your own merit. Do not think you will be able to stand before God on the basis of what you have done right or didn't do wrong, because the scales of justice are not in your favor. The best of our works are as filthy rags. No, the gospel is not trust in Jesus and do these other things. Those other things should follow as a result of faith in Christ. But it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, in his perfect life, in his death on the cross, in his resurrection over sin. Trust in Jesus. Throw yourself on his mercy, and God will be merciful to you, but he will be merciful in Christ alone. I want you to see, secondly, the members of the church are called to be the guardians of the gospel. The members of the church are called to be the guardians of the gospel. Verses 8 and 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. We preached through 1 Timothy recently. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul tells Timothy to guard the deposit that has been entrusted to you. And we unpack that. What is the deposit that was entrusted to Timothy? It was the gospel. And Timothy was charged to guard the gospel. In Acts 20, we won't read it, but Paul is calling for the elders of the church of Ephesus and he is telling them to pay careful attention because wolves will come in, not sparing the flock. So elders are clearly responsible to take the lead in protecting the church from false teachers. But as Galatians 1 makes clear, it's not just the duty of the elders. It is the responsibility of every member. I'm not recommending any late night talk show host, but there is one in particular that pops up every once in a while on YouTube and they're interviewing people on the sidewalk. And so if you were in that unfortunate position, cameraman comes up to you, sticks a microphone in your face and asks you if you're a Christian 
and you go to church and they say, well, what is your church's polity? Right? Yeah. That look on your face, like, what is our church's polity? What is our church's ecclesiology? This is, Galatians 1 is answering the question for us. The question is, how, do, how are we governed? How are decisions made? Where is authority? We believe that the Bible teaches New Testament churches are elder-led, but congregationally ruled. Galatians 1 is teaching us, you have a responsibility. Somebody's happy about that. I don't know who that was. You're like, yes, I have a vote. You do. I think, unless you're a visitor. Uh, You have this responsibility. You have this office. You have this charge. You have this duty that Galatians 1 lays out for us. The keys of the kingdom given in Matthew 16, we see in Matthew 18, are given to the church. And so the elders lead the church in decisions that the church makes, but ultimately that authority under God resides with the congregation. Matthew 18, 17 through 20. Matthew 18, 17 through 20 says, If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. That is, if a brother who you are confronting who is in his sin and won't repent, if he refuses to listen when even multiple people come to him, tell it to the church. Why tell it to the church? Because that's the authority. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and as a tax collector. That means the church is acting. The church is deciding here. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. What a verse that can be pulled out of context. If two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, if that verse meant what people thought it meant, then my kids would have succeeded in me getting a dog. Okay? They agree. I disagree. That's not what Jesus is teaching here. He's talking about church discipline. So this answers the question of what we should do when somebody's life no longer is in keeping with the gospel. The church is called in Matthew 18 to not affirm false confessors. In Matthew 18, don't affirm false confessors. In Galatians 1, don't affirm false confessions. Don't shy away from this responsibility. Apparently, the Galatians were likely to do so. We're reluctant to tell somebody who, who showed up from Jerusalem, who's got like this title that they're saying, hey, I'm this special person. Maybe I'm an apostle, whatever it may be. And they may be hesitant to confront them and to say like, no, you're not preaching that here, right? You stand up and tell us another gospel, we're kicking you out. Church, that is a responsibility that you have. If somebody is preaching to you a false gospel, out you go. So Paul literally just throws this 18-pound bowling ball right down the lane and just blows up any sort of what-ifs. He says, it doesn't matter who preaches to you any other gospel. Paul says, if he comes back himself and preaches another gospel, let him be accursed. Well, where can you go from there? Well, how about this? If an angel comes down from heaven, right, wings, lands in front of you and says, I have a gospel for you. Let him be accursed. This wasn't a slip of the tongue. He repeated himself. 
You say, angel from heaven? Come on now, that's like hyperbole. Angels aren't coming down from heaven and giving people new gospels. Joseph Smith thought one did, right? Why this drastic language? Because the glory of Christ was at stake. To preach any other gospel is to say the work of Christ on the cross was insufficient. That somehow we need to complete what he didn't do that was somehow unsatisfactory. This is a a tier one theological issue. That means if you are considering the order of importance where there's a theological disagreement, this is the top of the list. When somebody preaches another gospel, there is no room for accommodating that. Here are some specific ways that you, as a member of this church, should protect the gospel. Come to members' meetings. You may think, why would I come to members' meetings? Because that is where you exercise your authority as a church to bring in members who make a credible profession, whose life bears fruit of regeneration. That is where you come together to exercise your authority to remove members who are no longer walking in repentance, that we're not saying this person is going to be damned, but what we can say is we can't affirm their profession of faith anymore because their life doesn't match it. That is where you would elect uh, elders who would lead in sound teaching and godly living. That is where you would remove them as well. And I am thankful that a great number of you are very consistent to come to members' meetings. And I understand there are reasons why others may have a hard time being able to do so. You may even have to have a rotation with your spouse for kids, bedtimes, whatever the case may be. But I would encourage you, you have the keys, exercise that authority, be biblical, and I would encourage you, be a part of those members' meetings. And then lastly here, the gospel frees us from seeking approval in others. The gospel frees us from seeking approval in others. Verse 10, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So these Judaizers aren't just attacking the gospel, they're attacking Paul. And here's what they're saying about Paul. Paul's a people pleaser. It's kind of a head-scratcher, right? Aristotle said if you want to avoid criticism, say nothing, do nothing, and be nothing, right? But as soon as you say, do, lead, you invite criticism. So it's understandable that Paul's going to get criticism. But this criticism is so far out in left field, it is laughable. Paul, he wasn't trying to win a popularity contest. I mean, these anathemas alone are just clear that he is not seeking the approval of others. Later on in the book of Galatians, chapter 416, he tells them, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Paul was coming at people with truth, and I'm going to cover this, in love, but in such a way where offense could be taken. And he said, I don't want to become your enemy by telling you the truth. In Acts 13, 9 and 10, Paul addresses a false teacher. Tell me if this sounds like somebody who is a people pleaser. But Paul, I'm sorry, but Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? 
That's Paul, right? His camel bag did not have a coexist sticker on it, okay? He called a spade a spade, but this wasn't licensed for him to be a jerk. He's the author of the love chapter, and he would say that if he had understood all mysteries and had all knowledge and all faith, and yet he acted in a way that was without love, he was nothing. He refers to the Galatians as his little children for whom he anguished in childbirth until Christ was formed in them. The anguish of childbirth, that is how Paul would describe his love for these people. We have a lot of babies being born around here. Ladies can relate to the anguish of childbirth. That is how Paul describes his love for the Galatians. So don't misunderstand Paul. He spoke the truth, but he did it in love. He was patient and kind. He wasn't arrogant or rude. His speech was seasoned with salt. He said what was good for the building up of others. He sought to give grace to those who heard him. He did speak the truth, even when it wasn't well received, because his greatest concern as a servant of Christ was not the approval of others, but pleasing God. History would tell us that Paul died as a martyr. He was beheaded. People pleasers don't generally get beheaded. After reading the anathemas of verses 8 and 9, the thought of Paul seeking the approval of others seems like a silly question. He wasn't living for the applause of men. How, how do we get there? How do we reach the point where we are not seeking approval and acceptance by others? Well, we do so by resting in this same gospel that justifies us. That gospel of justification by faith alone doesn't just secure our eternal uh, bliss, but it also applies to our daily life that we no longer need to strive for acceptance from others because we already have it from God. Justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is the gospel. Preach it. The members of the church are called to be the guardians of the gospel. Protect it. And the gospel frees us from seeking approval in others. Rest in it. Let's pray.